Uh, my name is Father Alan Fitzgerald. I'm the director of the Augustinian Institute. Over the last six years, the Institute has sponsored a lecture that deals, all, deals with the relationship of religion and science, thanks to the generous gift of Dr. Michael Lamb. Um, and the lecture is therefore called the Vivian J. Lamb um, Lecture Series on Augustinian Thought. Tonight, our speaker, who is six weeks in uh, Virginia, promised to be here at 4 o'clock and hasn't made it. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so it, it is, all of a sudden, I just relaxed. <laughs> Thank you very much, Keith, for, be, for taking the, the time. Pennsylvania roads are not always easy. And I think we can chalk it all up to that. But I, I now get the great pleasure of introducing Dr. Edward Davini, who is going to introduce our speaker. Ed is a member of the Department of uh, Astronomy and, and Astrophysics. And his uh, introduction will, will be the right way to welcome our speaker, who is not only much awaited, but will be much appreciated. Ed? Thank you, Alan. Good afternoon, everyone. When the speaker is late, you should go get a cup of coffee because that makes them arrive. So um, I had the great pleasure a couple of years ago to, um, to hear a number of uh, Dr. Keith Ward's talks because he was the uh, senior, senior um, lecturer for the MetaNexus Institute, of which I am a member. And our, our idea is to promote dialogue between religion and science. I heard a number of his talks, and I know from that you're going to be uh, very happy with this talk today especially since the speaker has actually arrived. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, the Reverend uh, Professor Dr. Keith Ward. He's a British cleric, philosopher, theologian, and scholar. He is a fellow of the British Academy, an ordained priest of the Church of England since 1972, and was a canon of Christ Church, Oxford, until 2003. Uh, Keith has a Master of Arts and Doctor of Divinity degree from Cambridge and Oxford and was awarded an honorary doctor of divinity from the University of Glasgow. He has a long and esteemed career with affiliations at institutions including the University of Glasgow, the University of St. Andrews. He served as Dean of Trinity Hall, Cambridge, and he was the F.D. Maurice Professor of Moral and Social Theology at the University of London. Professor of History and Philosophy of Religion at King's College, London. Most notably, Dr. Ward served as Regius Professor of Divinity at Oxford, a post from which he retired in 2004. And I might mention that this professorship, the Regius Professorship of Divinity, is one of the oldest and most prestigious of the professorships at the University of Oxford and the University of Cambridge. He's been a visiting professor in the United States at Claremont Graduate University in California, Drake University, Iowa, the University of Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's authored over 200 books, uh, 20 books, including most recently. <laughs> it's just one on the log scale. Uh, including most recently, Rethinking Christianity, Is Religion Dangerous? The Big Question in Science and Religion, Why There Almost Certainly Is a God, in answer to uh, Richard Dawkins, as you, you may have heard. And Divine Action, Examining God's Role in an Open and Emergent Universe. You're going to have a, it's my great pleasure to introduce Keith Ward to you today, who's going to be speaking on Reaching the Omega Point, the trajectory of an open universe. Professor Keith Ward. 
Thank goodness for introductions. Go put my thing on. I don't have to switch it on. Okay. Right, well, uh, you recognize from the title that it's got something to do with Teilhard and his book, which used in his first English translation was uh, The Phenomenon of Man, but in its second uh, edition, uh, it was The Human Phenomenon, which is actually nearer to what it is in French. Teilhard was a Jesuit who was... Uh, banned from teaching for quite a while, which is the prelude to becoming a significant thinker in the Catholic Church. <laughs> uh, he's been out of favor for a while, largely because Teilhard, uh, he was a paleontologist, and he wrote a very poetic uh, account of evolution as uh, culminating in an omega point. I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, and some biologists who think that we're not going anywhere and evolution is so totally random that it, you can't predict it will land up in any particular place. They gave it very severe reviews and said it wasn't science and it was just poetry. And Peter Medower, who's a very well-known biologist in England, gave it a terrible review. So Teoch was under a cloud for quite a while. But I think he's emerging from that, and I'm a devotee of his. Uh, so I'm going to say some of the things that he said and how they actually do fit very well into the modern scientific view of the universe, especially the view that physicists and cosmologists now have. So that's what I'm going to do, but maybe to make a contemporary hook for this, you've seen in some of the uh, papers uh, remarks about Stephen Hawking and some remarks that Stephen made about God. Uh, have you seen these in the press at all? I don't know. Uh, in the English press, uh, you may think, and you would be right, of course, that England is the most secular country in Europe, um, nevertheless, it made front-page news. Stephen Hawking says there is no God. Why a physicist should be particularly qualified to say that, I'm not quite sure. They didn't ask any theologians, but uh, that it was front-page news. So what was Stephen Hawking saying? Well, he had a funny idea about God, for a start. He thought, he said, we don't need God to explain the origin of the universe because we don't need anybody to light the blue touch paper and set it going. So what sort of picture of God he had, I have not the slightest idea, but somebody at a fireworks display lighting blue touch paper. And of course we don't need that, and I don't think Christians have ever had anything like that at all. And he also, his other major remark was that, well, God wouldn't have wasted so much time and energy making a universe quite as large as this, in which the planet Earth is a relatively insignificant uh, piece of the Milky Way, uh, just to be concerned with human beings. So it looks too unrealistic for God to have made the universe uh, for human beings. And those are his two main points, and those two points can make the front page of the Times newspaper of London, which is extraordinary. So I want to begin with making comments on those points and how he's very near to the Christian tradition about God, but gets it wrong because he adopts too anthropomorphic, too naive a view about what God is. Just to remind you about the tradition of Thomas Aquinas, which you probably know very well, actually, but Thomas Aquinas said that God is not a person, God is not a thing, God is not an object. His favorite term for God was esse suum subsistens, being of itself existent, pure being, pure act. But the interesting things about that are that God is timeless. God, as the creator of time and space, is not in time. God is beyond time. 
So God is certainly not a person lighting touch paper because that takes time. God doesn't have any time, so he doesn't do anything like that. St. Augustine asked the question, what was God doing before he made the universe? And Augustine's answer was quite clear. God wasn't doing anything before the universe because there was no such time. You've got to think about that for a minute. There can't be anything before the universe because with the beginning of the universe, 13.7 thousand million years ago, the Big Bang, time began. Before that, there was no time. Some people find that a difficult thought, but for a mathematician, it's a very easy thought. You just say time is a relationship between events, and you, you can have relationships between lots of events, but there can be an event, call it A, which doesn't have any temporal relationship to any event before it, and that means there is nothing before A. All befores and afters start with A, B, C, D, E. And you can also have lots of different times which are not related to each other. Physicists who believe in the multiverse, hundreds and hundreds of universes, perhaps millions, perhaps an infinite number, there's no limit to the craziness of it. Uh, people who believe that there are many, many universes will say, well, there are many space-times. Now, I try and imagine that. We're in a space-time. We, space in space, I could, in principle, get from one place to another by movement, in principle. Uh, and in time, well, everything moves along. We know that there isn't a thing called absolute simultaneity, but there is a progression of time in the universe. We know, for example, that it started 13.7 thousand million years ago, so we know that it, well, the time is, that's the time, 13.7 thousand million, whatever they are, units. So, light years, I suppose, they would uh, correspond to being. So we know that, uh, but any other universe that there is, is not at any distance from this universe, because it's not spatially connected to this universe. So if you say, where is it? The answer is, it's not anywhere. Now, I want you to note that physicists are saying this. It's not crazy theologians inventing things. It's physicists who are saying things probably exist which are not anywhere. Okay. Universes. Where is this universe? Where is this space-time as a whole? It's finite. The universe is finite. Uh, but where is it? Uh, you imagine a whole realm of emptiness with a little universe bobbling around in the middle of it. But there isn't any emptiness. There's just a universe. There's nothing beyond it. Okay. So it's not anywhere. So if anybody says to you, and they're thinking about God, there can't be a being God which isn't anywhere, which isn't in any place at all, say, well, of course they can. Every physicist believes that there's a thing which isn't anywhere, and that's the whole universe. That's not anywhere. And if there are other universes, they're not anywhere either. Well, what time do they exist in? The answer is they don't. Each universe is a separate temporal sequence. Okay, so there is a whole space-time together. So if there's another universe, and this is where television series about getting into other universes through black holes get it all wrong, necessarily, because if there is another universe, it has no temporal relation to this universe. That means another universe does not exist at the same time as this universe or anything in it. And it doesn't exist before this universe, and it doesn't exist after this universe. Okay? It's just a different time. It has no temporal relation to this universe. So you can't actually jump out of one universe into another, because to do that, you'd have to go at one time into the universe at the same time. Right? But there's no temporal connection, so you can't do that. And that's why Quantum Leap, and if you remember things like that on television, they're not quite right. But they can't be. They've all got to make something up to make it into a story. 
So there you are. If there are lots of different universes, they have no temporal connection to each other. Now, this is interesting because, of course, God is rather like that. God has no temporal or spatial relation to this universe. I'm more or less construing Aquinas at this point. Okay? So God is the creator of space and time. God brings it into being. But God doesn't exist before the universe and then think, I wonder if I'll create a universe. Yes, I think I probably will. And then decide to do it and create it. No, God doesn't do that because God hasn't got any time to think in. In God, there is not one thing after another. That's time. There's no time. God doesn't exist where there is no time temporally. God is a non-temporal. We say eternal. God is an eternal existent. Now, you may say that doesn't make sense, but it's comforting to know that physicists are saying the same thing. There can be lots of universes which have no spatial or temporal relations to this universe. It takes a bit of getting used to, but all you have to do is say, don't try and imagine it. Don't try and imagine God. That's why you should never draw God. You can't do it. You can't possibly draw something which is not in time or not in space. It has no extent. It has no location. Uh, it has no duration. And that's the being of God. And it has to be if God creates the universe. Now, what I want to point out is, is in fact, how close Stephen Hawking's view is to Aquinas' view of God. But it's a pity that Stephen doesn't realize this. Well, he has been told, but he, doesn't, uh, he didn't write about it in his book, anyway. Uh, and the similarity is this, that Hawking says, and this is what he actually says. If you read his book, The Grand Design, I'm sure it's a beautiful book, um, which is probably not quite as unreadable as A Brief History of Time. Uh, which is the most uh, widely possessed and least widely read book in the world. <laughs> and uh, so his view is this. Bef be oh, I can't say before. Even to talk about this is a little bit difficult. But when, when, I, sorry, I just can't help it. There being no universe, right, God still exists. So God exists timelessly, whether or not there are any temporal things in existence. And the whole of space-time is generated by some realm beyond it. Now, what is this realm? Well, it's a realm of laws, the laws of nature, like the law of gravity and uh, things like Planck's constant, the gravitational constant, uh, uh, all sorts of laws there. And then, I don't know what else there is, but it's usually called a quantum vacuum state. And physicists, tongue-in-cheek, call this nothing. It's a vacuum state, so they say it's nothing. Well, actually, it's not nothing at all. Uh, it is full, this quantum vac vacuum state is full of activity, full of energy. Uh, it just happens that the inflationary energy, which makes the universe expand, and the gravitational energy, which makes the universe contract, are so exactly balanced that the sum total is zero. But it's really a verbal trick to say that's nothing, because if you say nothing, that means there's nothing at all. There, not a thing. Right? But if you say, actually, there are huge numbers of gravitational forces and huge numbers of inertial forces, but they more or less balance each other so that they're neutral, that's not nothing. It's a very busy, busy place. And in fact, things fluctuate in it all the time in the quantum state. So, Stephen Haw I don't know if you're going along with this, but anyway, Stephen Hawking's view is the laws of nature by themselves, without anybody with blue touch paper, generate this universe as one random fluctuation of the quantum vacuum state. So the universe, he says, comes out of nothing. It doesn't need anything for it to come out of. 
But of course, he's playing a trick when he says that. Because what you have before, or without the universe, is not nothing. It's a huge set of laws. How many laws are there? Where are they? What is a law, anyway? How can they exist just on their own out there? Well, they do. You've got all these laws. And they somehow bring into existence <coughs> quantum fluctuations. What are fluctuations? Well, normally, they're things that happen in time. Things fluctuate in time. But there isn't any time. So there can't be fluctuations, really. So what are they? And Hawking's truly extraordinary hypothesis is that these fluctuations actually represent the fact that every possible state of every possible law-governed universe will exist. That's the multiverse. Every possibility that's in accordance with the laws of quantum physics will actually exist. It's often called the many worlds theory. It was invented, you'd be pleased to know, by a graduate student in the United States. So, you know, that your PhD may make world headlines yet if you're in physics. But there you are. Does this make sense? Well, I think it makes less sense than God does, anyway. Because if you believe in God, you say these things. You say there is a reality which is beyond space and time. That's the same. It's beyond space and time. It is actually mathematically beautiful. Yes, God is beautiful. Uh, it is mathematically intelligible. Yes, God is a rational being. In the beginning was the word, the logos, the reason, and the word was God. So Christians believe in a rational God, not in an arbitrary lighting blue touch paper God, but a supremely rational God. And that supra-temporal eternal state generates space-times, perhaps lots of them. Augustine in the City of God said maybe God creates lots of universes. Why should this be the only one? But of course we can't know anything about the other universes because we're not even temporarily connected to them. We're not connected in time, so we cannot know anything about things we have no connection to. But there might be such universes. So why doesn't Hawking say, yeah, this is remarkably like what Christians have meant by God, that beyond space and time there is something upon which space and time depend, which generates space and time as a rational, intelligible system governed by laws. Where are the laws of nature? In the mind of God. Who makes the laws of nature apply to anything? God does. Out of God's uh, existence, uh, God can create various forms of energy uh, which, and make sure that the laws apply to them. The main point here, I think, is to say that, despite what the press says, Hawking has not delivered a completely satisfactory theory which doesn't make any mention of God and explains the universe fully without remainder. On the contrary, he's produced a theory which is probably uh, vacuous, probably doesn't mean very much. The, the mathematics is all right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the mathematics. I wouldn't uh, stand up in a competition with Stephen Hawking on mathematics. But the, the question is, and I would stand up with him on this one, uh, what does the mathematics mean? You've got all these equations, but what do the terms of your equations stand for? If I say, here's a bottle of water, and there are two bottles of water, one and one are two. They stand for things like that. But if you're dealing with irrational numbers, what do they stand for? Uh, do they stand for anything? And I think a lot of physicists actually do think they don't stand for anything. They're useful uh, mathematical devices to enable us to predict what's going to happen in this funny universe, but, but you don't say they stand for anything. So when people talk about the laws of nature existing on their own and somehow producing universes out of nothing, you've got to be very, very critical about that and say, is this a completely satisfactory 
uh, explanation which all physicists would accept? And the answer is no, of course it's not. It's highly provocative. Uh, it's doubtful whether it makes sense. We don't know. It's very interesting. And the most interesting thing about it is it's very near to the traditional Christian view of God's creation. Let me sum this part of my talk up by saying the Christian view of creation is not, repeat, not that God started the universe going at the beginning of time. That is totally false. The Christian doctrine of creation is that every time and every space, including this one, is created by God in one supra-temporal act. So the causality of the universe is not one thing following another thing. Right? It's not that at all. It's the absolute dependence of everything in the universe on a being beyond it, which is God. Right, so that's the first part of what I'm going to say. There's a lot of uh, convergence between physics and traditional theology, but a, a lot of physicists don't know about it because they have a very naive view of God. And I... I'm not going to tell you where they get that view of God from, but I suspect it's from certain parts of the United States of America where people do have very strange views of God who walks in a garden and has hands and feet and uh, doesn't know where Adam's got to because he's hiding behind a tree. Well, if you start off with that sort of view, you're lost. And that means that physicists are making a battle where there isn't one and shouldn't be one, never has been one traditionally. No responsible theologian has ever taken that sort of talk about God. Literally, they've ruled it out from the start. We have to see that. You've got to be a bit more subtle about what theology is saying. But of course, I haven't mentioned the most interesting and important thing about this God who produces the whole universe, and that is that God has, or at least we have to think of God as having, consciousness. God knows. God envisages possible universes. God evaluates possible universes for their goodness or badness. God chooses, decides to create a certain universe. Not in time, but that's in the eternal being of God that choice is made, and God creates universes. Now, those are things that only beings with mental properties do, knowing, evaluating, choosing, deciding, and enjoying the universe for its beauty and its rationality too. And God has those attributes, but he has them as an eternal mind, not our sorts of minds which have to think one thing after another, but as a mind beyond our comprehension, which knows everything in one intuitive and total act, and in that same act creates the whole of space and time. Now, that's the traditional view. And I want to put a tick to that view and say, yeah, modern physics is actually very confirmatory of such a view as that. Many physicists don't want to say the origin, the source, the basis of the universe is conscious, because... Well, I don't know why, they've just got something against consciousness, really. They're, perhaps they think that consciousness is nothing more than the movement of elementary particles and neurons in your brain. But that view, I think, is uh, going to be completely demolished quite soon, and in fact, it's been demolished many times throughout the history of philosophy. And again, it's just a rather sad uh, divergence between what philosophers have said throughout history uh, and uh, what physicists are actually doing, because physicists, while they, they are very brilliant at mathematics, are often not very good at philosophy, in fact, and not very good at seeing the alternatives that there are uh, in philosophical viewpoints. So again, what happens is they take a rather naive philosophy of materialism and say, well, you're nothing but material particles, that's all you are. In fact, Stephen Hawking does say that too. And you have to raise a question mark. It's not that you can say, I know that's wrong. It's that you have to say, every great philosopher in the Western tradition has not believed that. 
Uh, it's a fairly new belief, apart from one or two little exceptions in the history of philosophy you might come across, but the vast majority of philosophers have believed actually uh, that consciousness is a reality which has greater independent existence than matter. God, the ultimate consciousness, is more real <coughs> than anything in the physical universe. So I think I want to say straight away, there is a big philosophical divide here, and it's between people who think consciousness is the root and basis of everything, especially the consciousness of God, and people who say consciousness is somehow an illusion. It's a bit of uh, uh, irrelevant and unimportant byproduct of material processes in the brain. Well, there's a philosophical argument there. I haven't got time to make that argument, but just remind you that in the history of philosophy in the West, that argument has been not accepted. Uh, the materialist argument has been rejected by almost every uh, philosopher, and even atheists like David Hume were not materialists. I think fully-fledged materialism uh, more or less came into existence with Dan Dennett, as far as I can see. It's very, uh, it's very new and uh, very controversial. So some very good philosophers believe it, but you shouldn't think that it's very widely held in the philosophical community. It's not, and I don't know how many philosophers here are materialists, but I guess not many. Uh, I'll ask them later. Uh, so uh, consciousness is an important feature of the way the universe is, and something has changed in the modern worldview of physics. And that view that has changed the way that we see what the universe is like is what I would call cosmic evolution. That's what Teilhard was talking about. Cosmic evolution is not just evolution in the Darwinian sense of uh, organisms mutating and being selected naturally. It's not that sense of evolution. It's the sense that the whole universe from the Big Bang evolves. There's a cosmic evolution. And the word evolve, of course, originally meant gets better. It evolves. It doesn't just change. Uh, things emerge that weren't there before. The most obvious uh, factor which emerges in the history of the universe is consciousness itself. Consciousness is certainly uh, something that animals possess and human beings possess, but we assume that rocks and trees don't possess it. Plants probably don't possess it. And at the Big Bang, it certainly didn't exist. So it came into existence. It emerged or evolved. When I use the expression, as I do in the title of this talk, emergent universe, I mean, it's a universe which grows more complicated, more integrated, and produces new sorts of properties as it historically changes. A simple example of this is water. Water is made of H2O, hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen isn't wet. Oxygen isn't wet. Put them together in the right place, H2O, it's wet. So wetness is an emergent property. Right? It doesn't exist before you get H2O. And that's quite a number of billions of years into the history of the universe. The property of wetness emerges. First of all, you know the story. First of all, in the universe, you have uh, the production of things like quarks or photons or possibly superstrings, little tiny things anyway, very small, not atoms. They don't originate uh, at first. Uh, and then for billions of years, you have that going on. And then they gradually form more coherent chunks, atoms and electrons. They form in time molecules, so they're getting things more complex, more integrated, more, more like so solid entities in a way. And then as DNA comes along, you get very long complex molecules with the property of replicating themselves. 
So that's an emergent property, replication. It doesn't exist in the early billions of years of the existence of the universe, but it's a new sort of thing. Chemical properties are new. Heavy atoms like carbon, which are formed in the fusion of stars, which don't, before that, there's no carbon in the whole of the universe. Carbon is formed by particular processes at a particular stage in the history of the universe. That's an example of something new coming into existence, carbon. Carbon is uniquely fitted to produce organic life forms, bodies. They're not, carbon isn't uh, too fragile as silicone would be, would just fall apart and crack at the slightest opportunity. Uh, and it's uh, malleable enough to form various forms uh, of organic bodies. So carbon is necessary probably for intelligent life. Intelligent life has to form nervous systems, very complicated uh, sets of cells where every cell has a different job to do and there's a nervous system that forms a brain, and in the end, so far, so far, in the end, you get the, uh, the brain, which is the most complex thing known in this universe. And the human brain is a tremendously complex configuration of integrated uh, particles. So consciousness emerges as a property of the brain, and we become conscious when the brain is operating. Of course, we know that is true. But consciousness emerges from the physical structure that is operating in the brain. So this picture of an emergent universe is one which produces new properties as it uh, evolves. And this is a very interesting thing to happen, but to see the universe as emergent isn't anything that people knew about uh, before the birth of modern physics. Interestingly, you, if you look at the book of Genesis account, which is, of course, uh, a, a story for people who didn't know anything about physics, nevertheless, it has the picture of emergence. You have a, 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 a structure, as Augustine said uh, in his little book called On the Literal Meaning of Genesis, Augustine said the days aren't actually periods of time at all. It's a logical order in which things proceed from simpler, like plants and rocks, uh, to the more complex, like animals, and eventually the most complex of all human beings. It was Augustine who said that. Uh, uh, it's a, it's a, talking about days is putting things into a certain logical sort of order. That's the traditional theological view. So it is a sort of hierarchy of emergence. This is what Teilhard looked at. And he said, if you look at that evolutionary story, evolution from the Big Bang to now, you'd expect that it would continue. Can you make a guess as to how it would continue? Well, I think you can. You can see a direction in what's happening. Now, that will drive some biologists mad. I know it will, because I've seen them go mad when I've said it. Uh, Richard Dawkins, perhaps you don't know the name. I hope you don't. Richard Dawkins is a member of the Department of Zoology at Oxford University. And that department asked me to go and give a talk about God and evolution. And as I, as I was talking, they were beginning to foam at the mouth and jump around in their chairs and shut. And um, I realized this was quite a controversial topic for a biologist because it's a dogma of modern biology that there is no direction in evolution. It's so totally random that there is no way it's going in any direction. Okay. Anyway, they all started to foam at the mouth, so I left them to it, really, because they were angry at each other as well as at me. So I left them to argue among themselves, and I went home. Uh, and, and biologists do hate each other, I should say that. There's, there's a, a, a very deep level of hatred among biologists. <laughs> and they all think that all other biologists are completely stupid for some reason. Uh, I don't know why they think theologians are like that. It's biologists who are like that. And you know, probably, it's Stephen Jay Gould, who is one of the best-known biologists in the States, 
wouldn't speak to Richard Dawkins, who's the best-known biologist in Britain, and they hated each other. They said it was terrible. And if you try to find out why they hated each other, it's because one of them thought there were big jumps in evolutionary mutation, and the other didn't. And you think, okay, uh, it doesn't much matter, does it? <laughs> but they really hated each other, so it obviously did matter. So anyway, here you are. Is there a direction in biology? Clearly, biologists don't like it. Why don't they like it? I think because they're committed against God. I really think that's what it is. They're, if there were a God... You might say, Teilhard did say, the direction of evolution is in the direction of God. Because this is where the omega point comes in. The omega point, you know, alpha is the beginning, the Big Bang. Omega is the end of the universe, or rather beyond the end of the universe, probably. And he, uh, Teilhard sees the direction of evolution as an, an increase in complexity, an increase in organized integration, an increase in consciousness, in awareness, an increase in intelligence, an increase in the ability to control your environment for better or for worse. And it's just obvious that that is true. I think it's, uh, that, that those things have increased. So the direction the universe looks as though it's going into somebody who is not perverted by biology uh, the biology of the Oxford zoologists, anyway, uh, that, the direction is towards greater consciousness, greater intelligence, uh, greater awareness, greater appreciation. A universe in which people are able to relate to each other in love, in understanding, in cooperation and in creativity, that is a much more uh, valuable, uh, worthwhile universe than one which is just consists of photons circling around in virtually empty space. There is more value in that universe. The photons are valuable. I mean, I, I, I would want to say God, of course, values even the existence of photons. They have an intelligibility and a beauty of their own. But God is conscious of those things, and for the universe to produce out of itself other beings who are conscious of that is for the universe to produce more God-like properties. And there is actually a text in the New Testament which says the ultimate destiny of human beings is to become sharers, participants, in the divine nature. And in the Eastern Orthodox tradition of Christianity, theosis is a very important concept. Theosis means becoming divine. Theopoiesis, to be technical, but theosis is simpler. Uh, becoming divine. So that what humans look forward to is a unity with the divine. Of course, we believe, as Christians anyway, uh, that Jesus Christ is the anticipation of that future of humanity because Jesus is the unity for Christians of the human and the divine. And that becomes possible because the divine, as I've very briefly said it out, the divine includes awareness, evaluation, and enjoyment of the beauty and intelligibility of the universe. And insofar as humans come to appreciate that, they become sharers to an extent in the divine nature. But there's more than that to sharing in the divine nature, is that actually we will come to know that divine nature in an intimate and full way. So that will transfigure our view of the world. We'll not only see this physical universe, we'll see it being grounded in an infinite and eternal intelligence and consciousness. And that's the omega point. Uh, Tao talks about a state in the future in which all individual consciousness will perhaps merge in one uh, super-consciousness, or we might not all become one being, but the connections will become so uh, great between us 
uh, that we will have an immediate empathy with each other. In one, it sounds a bit like the Borg in Star Trek, but it's a good Borg. Right? <laughs> uh, Borg are a bad lot, you probably know. Uh, but in this, in this future in which we're bound together in a network of minds, perhaps some people might call that the World Wide Web, I suppose, already as an anticipation of what's coming, that we will be bound together in a much greater intelligence in which we all share. In the cloud, there is already you know, some information we can all download instantaneously. So he wasn't silly in saying that. Uh, is it a Christian view? Well, I think it is, because doesn't the New Testament say, and uh, doesn't the church say too, that we shall all be one in Christ. And if you read the book of the Ephesians, letters to the Ephesians and Colossians, it says the mystery revealed in Christ is this, that all creation, and it says tota panta, that's everything, the whole of creation, every galaxy that there is will be united in Christ, united. And what sort of unity is that? Well, John's Gospel spells out the unity that Jesus says exists between the Father and the Son and between him and those who are in him. It's an internal unity. It's an, a unity of minds which transcends anything we now know because our bodies separate us from each other and our minds are largely opaque to each other. We don't have, we wouldn't dare to have actually an openness to other minds fully. So we'd have to be transfigured. We'd have to be different uh, to share in a true communion of love. And I think the kingdom of God is that. It's a community of beings who are totally open to love. We're not there yet. There are anticipations of that in our world, and of course Jesus, for Christians, is the main anticipation of that. So what the New Testament itself couldn't quite say, because it didn't have an evolutionary view, but it's implicit in it, that's what I would argue. The evolutionary view is implicit in the New Testament, is a growing of the whole universe into unity in Christ, a sharing in the divine nature. And the kingdom of God comes as that gets nearer. So that evolutionary perspective uh, is a perspective of emergence into the divine. The, the universe, the material universe, becoming transfigured by divinity until it becomes a complete sacrament of divinity. And the sacramental life that we share in the church is again an anticipation of true sacramentality, that things will truly show God in their being without any limitation or imperfection. We're not in that world but that's the world that God desires. So there's Teilhard's vision of an evolutionary universe, and I think uh, that is a very plausible vision. And in fact, there are physicists, mostly physicists, who share that vision. They're a bit odd sometimes in the way they share it, and the reason they're odd is because, again, they don't like talking about God. So they try to get the vision without God. Right? They try to get the omega point without a God who is leading us to that omega point, whose purpose it is, that the universe should reach its fulfillment in that communion of love, the communion of being, full communion, and who will make sure that that happens. Now, take God away, and it, it becomes possible that that might happen, but, but it's a bit iffy. There's a book called The Physics of Immortality by um, Frank Tipler, very good physicist. And in that he says, he's not talking about God at all, though he did used to be a Southern Baptist at one time. That's perhaps not totally irrelevant. <laughs> Uh, he says that the way physics is going, we could already uh, download information uh, onto computers in the future. Uh, and we're thinking, you know, billions of years in the future. We've only existed for a million years or so. Each species in the history of the planet Earth lasts for about an average of 10 million years. If you take that as a sort of average, then human beings will exist for 10 million years. Uh, if we're lucky, we'll, you know, 10 million years and there'll still be beings on the earth, will they be human? 
Well, Owen Gingrich, who's professor of astronomy at Harvard, says, in 10 million years, if there is still life on Earth, there will be virtually no human beings, except perhaps in zoos. And so if evolution really does continue, we're going to transcend humanity as it's known at the present. In fact, in Oxford, there is a society called the Transhuman Society. They do look very odd, I have to say. But anyway, uh, one of their beliefs is we must go beyond humans into some other form of life. But it's going to happen. If evolution continues, that will happen. In 10 million years, there'll be no humans. Now, what do we think about that? Some Christians are sort of still bound to a rather myopic view. Uh, so Stephen Hawking is not totally wrong about this, that human beings really are the centre of God's attention. In fact, Thomas Aquinas did so. It was one of his mistakes. But of course, it's not true that human beings are the centre of God's attention. We are one planet in a solar system which is one of a thousand million solar systems in our galaxy, the Milky Way, which is one of a thousand million galaxies in the observable universe, which is one of how, who knows how many universes that God has brought into being. So human beings are a tiny part of the universe. There is no reason we should be the center of God's purposes. And I think we should abandon that notion altogether. We should say we are not especially important to God. Of course, everything is important to God. Every sparrow, every electron, I suppose, is important to God, and God rejoices in it because of its beauty and because of what it is. So God does love us, God does rejoice in us, but not more than other planets, not more than other sorts of beings, not even more than cats and dogs. Why should God love you more than a nice, fluffy cat? <laughs> no reason at all, really. So. Uh, I think we ought to abandon, explicitly abandon the view that humans are what God is interested in, and that humans are something utterly special. They're not. If you read the Bible, it doesn't even suggest that they are really. Human beings are lower than the angels. I mean, uh, you know, in the medieval view, there were thousands of millions of angels, all higher than human beings. We don't have to be the highest thing in the universe. The shock was that Jesus became human. I mean, the shock was to descend to something so low, not to, not to actually be something very exalted. We're not exalted at all. We're little lumps of DNA which have grown brains and become conscious. We're at a very early stage in evolution. So this is the Theologian thought, and this is why the church told me to keep quiet for a while, because he said, no, humans are not God's ultimate aim. God's ultimate aim is something far beyond us, but we are parts of the process towards that goal. And more than that, we ourselves, in all our primitiveness, will be able to share in that goal. Because Terre did share the Christian belief in immortality, we shall be resurrected by God, to share in the, and to see the meaning of that whole process towards beings far greater than us, but who will be our descendants, and to say, I see my place now. After all, we're all like this in the world, aren't we? We have a particular place in the world, and we say, I'm not the best person in the world. That, uh, that's not the thing. Uh, but it would be nice if I could see my place in the world. Did I do anything that was any use to anybody? Did I have a role in, in the world? And the answer was yes. One of the things about life in the world beyond this is that we shall see what our role was and what we did. If it's bad, that's judgment. But if it's good, that will be included in the delights of paradise. And so, as each of us can say that about ourselves, so the human race can say it about itself. Homo sapiens, yes, did some good things, 
But it doesn't have to be the only good thing or the best thing possible in the universe. We just have a role in the history of the universe. So I think that's perfectly consistent. In fact, Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest, you must serve, you must be the least. Pride is the greatest of vices. So don't be proud about being human. Just say, okay, um, I'm human. But don't say humans have no value either. That would be wrong. Of course humans have a value. Just got to say God values the whole of creation, not just human beings. The thing about human beings, and the thing about Jesus being human, is that on this planet anyway, only human beings can know consciously the unity of human and divine, which is our ultimate calling, and the ultimate calling of the whole universe. So if you expand your view of, crea of uh, creation and providence and the divine relation to creation, you can say it's the whole universe. It's what Teilhard called cosmogenesis. It's the destiny of the whole universe. Everything in heaven on earth, everything in all the galaxies that there are, which will be brought into unity in Christ. So that Christ then is not just a human being. Jesus, the human being, is the embodiment of that Christ in a human form. There's no reason why that should be the only form in which the Word of God, eternal, beautiful, everlasting, is embodied. Again, Thomas Aquinas uh, said, could there be more than one incarnation? And his answer was yes, certainly, but he thought there only had been one, in fact but he was open to the possibility that the Word of God, since it is eternal and beyond any human conception, could be embodied in any number of ways. For us on this planet, being human is you know, an obvious way to be embodied because human beings can think, they can reflect, they have moral responsibility, moral freedom. Most importantly, they have a responsibility for caring for the planet. So in Jesus, you can see the sort of unity of the divine spirit and the human life which is necessary to enable humans to carry out that responsibility properly. So I would suggest that it's time to have a new vision of Christianity, really, a more cosmic vision, to get away from the thought that God is just concerned with human beings and that the history of the universe is rather short, it's just concerned with what happens on the Earth, and therefore, as Stephen Hawking says, we can't see why God made so many planets and galaxies. What was the point? The answer to that is, the point was, everything that God creates is good insofar as it relates positively in its own appropriate way to God. And that's true of us, as it's true of everything else. What's special about us is we have the responsibility to appreciate the world that God has created and perhaps to shape it more in accordance with the beauty and intelligibility that God desires. We have a future to look forward to which is not that we, in our present form, will exist forever. Perhaps that wouldn't, I wouldn't be, I don't want to be like this forever, certainly. I want to be transfigured. How transfigured would I need to be? Quite a lot. So, are we going to say, I'm going to be just like me forever, and my Auntie Mary, and I can talk to her, and there we are. Well, I've talked to her quite a lot already, and uh, I've had enough, really. So, <laughs> we might get on better in heaven, I suppose, but still, I don't want to be stuck with her forever. In fact, you might say being stuck with the same people unchanging forever is a good definition of hell. <laughs> what you, we do it in Oxford, in our colleges, you know, we all have dinner every night. And, uh, it, uh, well, I won't say any more about that. That's why we drink so much. So, 
if you're thinking, what future do we want in God? And if you think God is infinite, let me end with a quotation from my favourite ancient theologian, Gregory of Nyssa. He's a saint, so he must have said something right. And Gregory of Nyssa said that your life is the beginning of an infinite journey into God. So beyond this life in which we as souls, as individual persons, are born and begin our task of responsibly shaping the little bit of the world we inhabit, beyond that there is still an infinite journey that we begin and we shall no doubt exist in forms we cannot imagine. The New Testament says, when Christ appears, we do not know what we shall be, but we know that we should be like him. And that Christ is not just the human Palestinian. It is actually the eternal word of God, which can take a million forms, or not, as it chooses, but which is the endless wisdom of God. So there's a picture of the whole universe being God's uh, joy, God's creation, God's beloved. And we're parts of that cosmic evolutionary process towards the omega point, at which all things in heaven and earth will be united by sharing consciously in the divine nature. We're not going to see that in our lifetimes. We're part of a process. And God's promise, I think, is that when we die, we shall eventually share in that vision. So I think that's a new vision. And Teilhard was probably the first Catholic to think of it. Uh, it was thought of before, if you want to know historically, two German Lutheran uh, philosophers, Herder and Hegel, had a vision something like that, but not quite the same. And it's very interesting to see that the word evolution was originally a religious word. It was a word uh, showing how the whole of the creation gradually shows forth uh, the glory of God. So I think we should reclaim evolution as a religious word and say what we believe as Christians is in an evolutionary view of the universe, matter evolving towards spirit. And we're people with a responsibility in that process. And Christ shows in a human form an anticipation of what we hope for at that omega point, which is the end of this universe. Thank you very much.